Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Antonia Quirk and welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on Oman, which featured in the April 2019 issue of Condé Nast Traveller, a year before the death of Sultan Qaboos. I hope you enjoy it. The Sultan of Oman has a palace in Muscat with gold columns shaped like bugles and herbaceous borders of flashing pink blossom. Morning in the city comes fast and hot and everything around is preternaturally intense. The sprinklers on the palace lawns, the smell of wet hydrangeas, the scream of birds. Very popular shop nods my friend Case, as we hurry down Albari Road to a deli called Cheese and Jam, which sells nothing but cheese and jam sandwiches. There is, to certain corners of the capital, something redolent of the Women's Institute. Oman was part of the informal empire until 1970, and various fond links with the UK prevail. Sultan Qaboos, trained at Sandhurst, his father, deposed in a coup, saw out his last days at the Dorchester. The salmon-pink carpets in Muscat's new Grand Mosque were woven in Scotland. When in ill temper in the 1950s, the former Sultan would sometimes keep the great gates of the city shut for weeks, sulkily poring over maps of this, the oldest independent state in the Arab Peninsula with its savage climate and population of just 4.6 million dotted through swathes of largely desert country. Beyond Muscat are vast massifs of malachite, eerie valleys haunted by wild, shaggy goats, terraces of frankincense and oases of water, the purest, greenest green. Although rich from oil, the country doesn't suffer many of the usual distortions of oil wealth. Bugattis might sip down some roads, but as a rule, Omanis live modestly. Visiting women are not pressed to cover their heads, and religious minorities are protected. It's not simply that religious extremism isn't tolerated in Oman. It's considered embarrassing, impolite. 
later stuck behind a cart of cackling chickens. I slide out of our car and I make for the souk, which winds endlessly behind Muscat's corniche. Much of the older parts of the city have gone the way of bulldozers, but not this tangle of murky shops, and immediately I'm lost amongst rows of copper twine and collectible banknotes, thimbles of blackened silver, bracelets of grimy opal. In one dark corner, I spot an 18th century print so rain-damaged it's hard to make out that it's a scene of a sultana taking tea after a hunt, overlooked by sonorous peacocks and the lobbed-off heads of gazelles. I shove it back in a pile, but then I change my mind and I turn round, only to run into a flock of schoolchildren reaching for hilarious plastic toys of camel riders wielding electric guitars. Mothers prod boxes of traditional remedies, malab for headaches, Quirkum for healing, amber-coloured opium oil for more pleasant dreams. A man covers his fat baby's arms in kisses. A trader shifts sackloads of rosebuds. And when eventually I stagger out, I find Case sitting at an outdoor cafe, enjoying a fresh breeze, tangy with salt. Does the Sultan spend much time on that? I ask pointing towards an immense ship, slowly making its way through the port. Not really, smiles Case, indulgently. He's a mysterious character, the 78-year-old Sultan Caboose. He was once married, but does not appear to have children. Who will succeed him? Nobody seems able to confirm. But it seems he has long understood oil to be a finite resource, gently opening the country to tourism since the mid-1980s. I keep expecting to sense, in the ether, an inkling of malcontent about it all, some smidgen of a reluctance to bestow the adoration that befits a sultan. But it never happens. As the fatty, flaxen glare of the sun mellows into twilight, crowds along the waterfront drift to and fro. The Arabian Sea glitters like anthracite. Behind us and beyond, a mountain range is made of slate that looks like polished wood, and malachite that looks like aged leather, and copper that looks like spring lichen topped with a snow that turns out to be, in fact, limestone, and that can darken quickly into shadow under clouds like falling black feathers. Really, it is an impossible task to reflect the vistas and the variousness of beautiful Oman, but the following three elements might suffice. Water. Why would you want to, protests Ali, the captain of a catamaran, when I ask him how to cook flying fish. Along the coast north of Muscat, the waters are full of them, bursting through like fireworks, their fins pure quivering voltage. See, I can fly, cries Ali, giving the species a voice. Anything is possible. He's like the fisherman I met in the old fish market in Muscat, 
who showed me the scars on his arms from the sharp teeth of a tuna he'd wrestled into his boat, his face euphoric above orange robes stained with the guts of a cat shark. My neighbour in London, Henry, was raised in Muscat in the 1980s when the city had the air and sights and characters of an Ian Fleming novel. He recalls rows of giant hammerheads lying by the old dows at this market and an immense sunfish brought up during a supermoon. And a certain ginger-moustached Major Foxton, formerly of the Foreign Legion and of the Royal Green Jackets, who had ended up running the Sultan's Armed Forces Beach Club in the city, where Henry learned to swim. The enigmatic major would whiz up slush puppies with the metal pincers that had replaced one of his bombed-off hands. Behind us, the sunset throws a pink glitter over the mountains. And eventually, the catamaran approaches a cluster of uninhabited islands off the coast of Barca. One called the Garden of Eden and the other the Destroyed and they seem to float above the water, somewhere between heaven and earth, as though Scheherazade had made them up. Ali hints that there's a good place to dive for pearls around here. His grandfather, the captain of a boat that journeyed between Zanzibar and Yemen, left Ali his sea chest when he died. And inside was a thick rope for catching sharks, a silver pipe for opium, and an oyster shell as long as his forearm. Dipping and rolling the boat about white-sanded coves, we watch for the inquiring heads of green turtles and eventually anchor on a gentle swell at night, the sailors smoking and talking of the weather, the islands soft and bare in the moonlight. Ali remembers a storm that flared up so suddenly he had to lash himself to the mast like a shredded flag. Someone fiddles with the radio to find a station that plays international club hits and a DJ occasionally chips in with the evening news. As the boat swings in the lapping water, the signal gives out completely and everybody sings instead, moving seamlessly between rave anthems and an Omani love song that goes, If I had told the sea what I felt for you, it would have left its shores, its shells, its fish, and followed me. Sand. 140 miles south of Muscat lie the Wahiba Sands, 5,000 square miles of dunes, wind sculpted into deep valleys of sombre grace, the brutal sun casting a purple darkness. They were recently named the Sharkia, after a new tribe, but everybody still says Wahiba. Wahiba. Such a beautiful word, hard to stop repeating it. Some Bedouin families live here in small holdings, and I sit one day in a large tented room that smells of coffee and charcoal and dates, 
Palm frond walls, slatted with sunlight, pierce the gloom. Outside is the distant clamour of camels. 25-year-old Salma, the eldest daughter of the family, wears a new red dress shot through with glimmering silver thread, which she moves this way and that to catch the light, eventually sighing with a bored good humour and stretching out a slim hand stained with sandalwood towards a blue opening in the cloth ceiling. The days here can be so hot that a visitor way back in 1422 wrote that the gemstones in his dagger were reduced to coal. But Salma is talking now about the night sky, sometimes so full of clouds of stars, it seems more white than black above the dunes. Al-Rahil, she utters with love. The sands... I say that I don't really understand the silence of the desert. Even in the remotest countryside, there is usually the noise of birds or leaves. She watches me with eyes the tawny violet of a winter plum. One day, she says, she was lost walking in the dunes, but kept hearing the calls of children, unmistakable but nowhere to be seen. After a while, she had to sit on her haunches gathering her senses. Shake, shake, she giggles, handing me an old plastic bottle from the floor, full of little stones. And in my hands, the bottle vibrates, with the scuttle of a scorpion inside it, about the size of a mouse. It's a death stalker, no less, its sting raised furiously aloft, with a yellow underbelly and a pea-green torso as pretty as a toy although its powerful venom can bring on pancreatic collapse. Later, camping out in the dunes, I wait for meteor showers and exploding comets. It can happen here, says Salma. And sudden sandstorms, red-tinted as though you were surrounded by fire. And sometimes, after heavy rains, the dunes will burst into great swathes of green grass, as though the sand was just a garden in waiting. A great silence, desert silence, the kind that doesn't let up and feels even greater at dawn when the dunes are incongruously swaddled in mist like a Dorset hedgerow and the briefly damp sand looks strangely alive, covered in seams and fissures and veins and the tiny footprints of birds and oryx. In the grey morning light are camels, half asleep by the tents, chewing on dates, their eyes nearly closed, lashes soft and brown. Female camels are lovely. At Allah, the Bedou call them, God's gift. Breakfast now, and lots of glasses of tea. It's easy to become besotted by water here, not out of thirst or of heat, but for the visual variety, wells and oases like the Wadi Bani Khaled, where people swim in warm water, the colour of peridot. I sat one day there with Case, and he sang for me as our bare feet dangled in the water, being nibbled on by little minnow-like fish. I 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله The air in the desert is hot and clean and gorgeously vacant. I once read a story about an abandoned, ancient desert castle visited by T.E. Lawrence. Along its corridors he found rooms upon rooms made of clay, kneaded with the juice of flowers, still smelling of jasmine and rose. But an Arab companion led him to a window where the desert wind streamed past and said, This is the best. It has no taste. People. The high distant village of Misfar surges up from the rocks with its fortress and 1,000 year old watchtower. In a women only washing area balanced above a chain of man made waterfalls and fallage, which is an antique but really efficient irrigation system, I find a changing room and on its floor a ragged Persian rug and a polished pomegranate husk filled with hairpins. Across the valley an imam sings, the faint but persistent sound enveloping the narrow lanes. Prayer is better than sleep, he sings. And blue-bellied Indian rollers swoop over terraces of garlic towards the jags of distant peaks. Hearing steps, I peek through a little gap in the stone wall and I see two young girls swathed in fluttering pink silk as though wrapped in hibiscus leaves. They're followed by their father, who carries in his hand, as casually as one might a carton of milk, a great unsheathed curved dagger to cut grass for the family's animals. This sort of Omani dagger is sold on market days in villages, along with old hunting rifles, often around a distinctive tree. When I visit Nizwa, the one-time capital of the interior, early one morning, I head past such a tree to the market square where crowds of traders have gathered for the weekly goat market. From a jam of pickup trucks and old vans, men gently carry the youngest of the kids as though they were shy toddlers. Bedou women wearing black beaked masks coax goats the size of Shetland ponies with massive fluffy thighs that beat and stamp like prima donnas next to great wooden buckets of black honey brought from the border with Saudi Arabia. It's pandemonium. But not disorderly. No animal is lost or hurt, no harsh words exchanged. That day at the market, there's more noise from the cages of parakeets in the bird souk around the corner, a trader pulling a donkey down the cobbles, balancing cages of white doves on its back. A gang of young boys chuck their bicycles to the ground to kick immense spring onions down the lanes like footballs. A woman examines a live chicken at a stall, carefully feeling behind its wings as though examining the seams on a vintage jacket. Her little son leans wearily and heavily against her. He is 
undeniably lovely. She smiles at the weight of him. You wouldn't believe the hubbub, the bawling from trailers, the good-humoured hilarity. But back at the tree with the daggers and the guns, all is peace. Men are drinking chai with cardamom and small cups of coffee at a cafe and reading the newspaper. Front page news is that there's a 7% rise in passenger numbers at the airport. Prince Charles has just published a ladybird book about climate change. Oman's first train line is being planned. But before long, the paper is pushed away. Oman is vast and ancient, and any news merely slides into her fulsome embrace. By late afternoon, the traders stop, and a waiter at the cafe sweeps up cigarette ends and sets down plates of crunchy rahal bread. Above is the thin, sweet cry of circling kites as the sun inches lower, a glistening orange fragment. An old man with a hawkish, sunburned expression elbows his way through the crowd, barefoot and wearing a decades ragged army greatcoat, although it's entirely covered, along with his face and hands, in a fine white dust. The heavy bag he carries, he sets carefully on the ground and opens it, bringing out a small set of scales and weights and a great mound of sticky, dusty frankincense, which he sells piece by candy green piece in a perpetual cloud of aromatic powder, bargaining with a sharp tongue and shake of the head to the whir, put whir, of a near-defunct Singer sewing machine repairing disher dashes in a shop beyond. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.